Welcome to Dream Big with Big Dreamers, conversations for career growth, inspiration, and insight, hosted by Donna Sardula and yours truly, Scott Jones. Here are the inspiring stories that shape the careers of top executives, entrepreneurs, and professionals. These empowering discussions offer guidance and advice as you advance in your career. It's time to dream big. Hey there, Scott. How you doing today? Donna, I am doing well. What's going on with you? Well, it's windy here in Philadelphia. You, my friend, are a digital nomad. I'm wandering around right now. I'm in, I'm, I'm in warmer, a warmer climate than you are right now. And yeah, I'm having a nice time. Having a nice time. You're in, you're in Arizona still? I'm in Arizona. We're in Michigan. Now you're in Arizona. We're in Michigan. It was in Michigan, Arizona. Who knows where the wind will blow me. As Dylan said, I am like a rolling stone. By the way, I do the best like a rolling stone in karaoke you've ever heard in your life. I, I can believe that. You that. used to, you know, it's, you got to have that kind of, you know, you got to have see, the whole Dylan. I did Dylan. not see that coming. I, I, uh, I, I do it as Dylan. I do it as Dylan. I, I knew a guy who had a very normal speaking voice and out of the blue, he told me that he could speak just like Kermit the Frog. And he did. It was. Was the, was there a second date with Kermit or? That was, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Years yeah, ago before I got married and had kids. This is Because that would make you his Miss Piggy. <laughs> Never, never. <laughs> so can we talk about roller skating well, for a minute? No, you, this is how I was going to segue into that, Scott. I'm going to tell you this. I think where you should be going next is Venice Beach. Lace up those to roller skate. skates. And to skate. skate along the boardwalk there. Do you know I had such traumatic memories of roller skating rinks because like, I was not – I was a late bloomer, so to, so to speak, and I didn't realize that you know, women enjoyed just normal conversation, things like that. So, so I was never the guy that got a lot of female attention in school, but I used to like try to get it at the roller skating rink. And so the mixed, you know, the couple skate would come on and, you know, you had all that great eighties music. And I, uh, I often tried to, um, you know, make my way romantically via the couple skate. And I want to make it known that rarely was I successful. (laughs) So I don't go to roller skating rinks now because they, Remind me of, my, I was going to say love lost, but love never had. Oh, that's, basically, that 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 is a shame. But you know, our next guest actually has such a windy, crazy career. Part of it actually touches upon roller skating. Oddly enough, um, her name is Wendy. King and Wendy King is executive director, CEO of the International Order of the Golden Rule, which is a trade association. She's also the executive director at Rayborn Group International, which is an association management company. She has taken a rather colorful, colorful career path over the past 35 years. Along the way, she has had to become an expert in fields as diverse as the police and fire service, the roller skating industry, and even the funeral profession. So, Wendy, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Funeral. Funerals. (laughs) Really? (laughs) What did you want to be when you grew up? You know, what I wanted to be out of college was a journalist. 
and because I love to write. And I will tell you, I my first job, I still plan to do that. And I took my first job at the police department just intending for it to be temporary, although I stayed there 13 years. Um, but then I read an article and it said how much a journalist for a newspaper made. And that changed my mind. Changed your mind? <laughs> yeah, I was done. Yeah. Well, you know, you and I had originally talked about how you got that job <laughs> with, with the police. That's kind of an interesting story in and of itself. Yeah, the job, um, the title was media relations assistant, but it back in the day, so we're talking 30 some years ago, um, it was basically, it was a secretary. That's what it was. You typed up press releases and um, I went and you had to actually take a typing test. And unfortunately I couldn't type and I typed 18 words a minute, which if you know anything about typing, that's not good. And so they, they, turned, that, that's really called henpecking yes, at that, right? <laughs> that's exactly what it was. And it was on a selectric typewriter back in the day. Um, cause there were no computers. And luckily for me, um, the manager that was hiring actually changed. It transitioned after I failed the typing test and they said, no, you can't have it. The new manager or the new, um, he was a police officer came in. Um, and he looked at my resume and said, you know what, let me give this girl a chance. And um, his name is Mike Price. And he still to this day teases me about that. He's the one that gave me the job. And the guy that didn't teases me about, I made the biggest mistake of my life. Um, and so I got the job. And by the time I ended that job, by the way, I could type like 65 words a minute. So I didn't prove. Um, but what was great about that job is the job title, media relations assistant. And I looked at that title and said, you know what? This job is much more than a secretary's position. And I kind of grabbed the reins based on the title and started yeah. doing things that weren't in the job description. Cause I said, the title makes it seem like I should be doing interviews. And that's kind of the mindset that I went into my first job like. And, and you also had that desire to be a journalist. Mm -hmm. So I think that also kind of fueled you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, obviously the first thing that I did in that job was show initiative um, because I wanted to do more than just type press releases because I was terrible at typing press releases. So Can that I ask was, how old were you? I was 21. 21 oh, years old. Okay. And so you were, this really was the very beginning. Very of first career. job. Yeah. First real job after, after being a server for many years. And one time a manager telling me I was not cut out to be a waitress. So and you were like, thank yes, God. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I started really, I, I took initiative wherever I could and little by little by little, I started getting more responsibility because of that. So, you know, my job in the beginning would have been to go get teletype reports on a police run maybe, and I'd give it to my boss. Well, then I'd start giving it directly to the reporter. And, you know, so then I was having a little bit of a conversation with the reporter. And then as I got, I guess, trusted in doing that, I did a little bit more. And I then all of a sudden I was allowed to do some small um, newspaper interviews, just, you know, on a traffic accident, say. And once I kind of showed that, and it wasn't like anybody was saying, prove to me and we'll move you on. It just kind of slowly happened. 
just and so you never asked for permission right that's exactly it I never now I didn't go I didn't go do things I shouldn't do but I kind of pushed the boundaries and it did you ever crack a case did you ever go into the evidence room and say you guys missed something here's what here's what you missed (laughs) no but I will tell you I would spend a lot of time in the homicide office and looking at you like pictures that they had on their desks of homicides and wondering what it would be like to um, solve a homicide. And in fact, I will tell you, I was really good friends with the detectives in there. And we had an agreement at the time that if they ever found me dead, the first thing they had to do was cover my thighs with a blanket because I was not comfortable about my thighs at the time. Now, if I could And is this what... Is this what leads you to the funeral industry? You're just looking at dead bodies all day and you're like, well, hey, I mean, why don't I just go? It's a logical segue. Let's go where they go you next. You know, I never thought of that, but <laughs> look where it took me. So, um, but yeah, so at the end of the day, by the time I left there and I actually left in the media relations side and went to the special events side for several years, but by the time I was actually doing interviews for the police department and at the, you know, before that they weren't having civilians do interviews. Um, now about halfway through I was doing that, they did bring in another civilian, but, um, but I mean, really it was me showing them that I had the initiative and that I could do the job. Um, I'm really, I'm, 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 I'm curious. What did your parents do for a living? Well, uh, my dad, my dad was in sales. Um, now my mom worked at the police department. She was there 35 years. She worked in vice, not as a vice detective. She was a secretary and then later was in the chief's office. But so she, um, was kind of my protector there, but I will say because she worked there, all the police there sort of took care of me because I grew up there, you know, from 21 and I left 13 years later, I, I grew up at the police department. So that's, I, if you're going to have protectors, I think it's the police. Yes. I think, I think you definitely want them in your, in yes, your back yes. pocket. What made you move? Where, where did you go after this? Then? Um, you know, I honestly, by then, part of me thought I'm never going to leave because a lot of people there would stay forever. And um, luckily, I wanted more money. And I realized that I was never going to make more money there because you definitely don't make a lot of money. And someone, um, a friend of mine with the city of Noblesville, um, a small town outside of Indianapolis, said, hey, there's an opening for a public affairs manager for the mayor there. Um, You should apply. And I called them up and they said it closes at 5 p.m. tonight. The the process closes at 5 p.m. tonight. If you want to apply, you got to get a resume in here by then. Well, I hurried up, I got it, I drove down there, I dropped it off, and two days later they called me for an interview, and three days later they offered me the job. And it happened so quickly that I hadn't even had a chance to really think about, oh my gosh, I'm leaving this career that I love. The family, I mean, it was family to me at the police department, and it kind of freaked me out, but I also was kind of excited. So I was scared, but excited at the same time. And honestly, it was the best thing I could have done because again, that next step is where I learned so much in that role that then carried me, um, you know, to, uh, to other roles in my job. I like that you, you, you decided what your future was going to be. So many people sit and wait and they work and they work and they work until they close the door on them. Yes. 
Yes. You know, and how did you, how did you feel that you were empowered to make that? Was it just simply monetary or did you realize you had more value and you had more things to do? You know, it's funny. I realized that I had more value. I mean, obviously money was a big thing and it's funny. Um, my mom chose to stay at the police department all those years. And, and I used to tell her, get out. You, you're so skilled, you know, you would be a hot commodity. And she stayed and years later, she said to me, you were so smart to do that because look where it has taken you. So as much as I love the place, you also have to know, um, you know, when it's time to move on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's interesting the way things are valued too. I remember interviewing a pretty prominent national journalist, David French, and he, he, he served in Iraq. It was, he volunteered to go to Iraq. Um, and he said that, a lot of the police shootings that happen here, uh, like shootings that often wind up tragic and are unnecessary, they just don't happen in Iraq because we spend so much time, more time and money training the soldiers. And so their, their, their ability to exercise force discipline is they just have a lot more restraint. And they're young kids. You know, they're 18, 19-year-old kids. But he's like, they're not – it's not that they're from a, a remarkably better talent pool, Right we just spend a lot more money and time and because and, and, for some reason we value that more than the average amount of money we put into a police department, you know, in a local municipality. So it's just interesting the way oftentimes, I guess, and you've seen this in your career, you have to kind of figure out how value is determined and how it's negotiated. And then where you fit in the system. Uh, otherwise you, you're going to, it sounds like you're just going to be, like many people swimming around in places where you're not valued or you don't know your value and you don't know how to ascertain what it is. Yeah. I think, I think people just don't know their value. And if you do, that's, yeah. that's what, that's what I think that's the beginnings of empowerment is saying, Hey, I know what I'm worth. I know what I bring to the table and I refuse to accept anything, you know, below that, that line. So, I want to hear more about the roller skating oh. association. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. So I, um, I actually, I stayed and I loved my job. Um, I've loved every job that I've had. I've been so fortunate in life to be able to say that. And, um, and I left that job to actually take a job with the World Police and Fire Games. And it was something that I had worked on for many years um, to bring those games to Indianapolis. And once the games were over, there, um, my job was over. So it, it was the first time where it was kind of a contract position in a way. And um, so I was um, needed to find a job, put out my resume. And honestly, I think that the Roller Skating Association was the first job that called me. And they didn't tell me, it just said International Trade Association. So I went into the interview not knowing what it was. And um, that's what it was. And at first I thought, what? I don't, what? Do, am I really going to go and work here? Um, but then I thought, I need a job. And I went there. And obviously, I really liked the job. I was there five years. Um, but I will say it's funny. Whenever I would tell people I worked there, every time, the first reaction, people laugh. The second reaction, they want to know if I worked in a rink, a roller skate rink. <laughs> or they joked like, you know, do I serve the cheese fries? Um, so it was like a lot of kidding for all those five years, but, um, but it was a great, oh. here's my question. 
like is there a roller blading association and is there like a lot of rivalry <laughs> between the roller skaters and the roller bladers you know i don't know for a fact but there is a trade association for everything so it would not surprise me if there was um, but this was just, uh, they called them quads. So quads is what they call the difference between the rollerblades and, and the others. But, um, but you know, it was my first experience with a trade organization, not a profit or not, not a nonprofit or yeah. a government agency. Um, so it was interesting because there you're actually working to help small business owners. And at the end of the day, that's what you're doing is helping them succeed. And it was a business where they're, they were struggling. This, is, this has been a while ago, but I imagine they're still in the same place where it's a challenging um, industry. You know, it's not necessarily a growing industry. And it's a lot of them are small mom and pops that really care about their communities and want to do well by the kids in their um, communities. And this was really the foundation because from there you continued along that association in a trajectory. Yeah, that's where I first started doing, um, you know, marketing for businesses, but then also development. So really looking at sponsorships and, and um, partnerships. That's where I really started doing kind of that things that then pushed me on to the, the later part of my career. Uh, were there associations where you were just like, look. I just can't get into this. Like if this is left-handed lumberjacks, I just really can't, you know, feel the association connection. I mean, do you have to have some kind of interest or curiosity in the association or can you get excited about pretty much anything if, if the, if the scene is right? Well, now I don't think I could get excited if it was come work at a place and you're selling widgets or it's, you know, I think you have to have a passion. Like I feel like I have to have a passion and just like where I work now, it's, again, that passion in helping small businesses. So it, it's different. It's not nonprofit per se, but you're helping people. And I think that's what's important to me. Did you ever... Have when you say helping people too, you, you, your name for your own business that you run is the Golden Rule mm -hmm. Associate. I mean, you, you've put that in there, which seems to me to kind of, I mean, give you a religious tag. I mean, most people... That are gonna they're gonna use terms like that. I mean, it's not you know the most religious tag. You could probably use you know the ascended Lord Christ the King or something like that. So as religious things go, it's like not a ten, but it's on a one to ten, it's a solid five or six. Uh, has that? How did you choose that? And, and have you found that that kind of religious branding? has helped or hindered you as, as you've worked in the business? Well, world. now I came here uh, back last October, um, started with the Order of the Golden Rule, and it's actually not religious, it's ethics. Um, the independent, okay. the, the funeral homes believe strongly <clears throat> in treating their customers, they call them families, treating their families well. And um, I think that's the thing that's been most amazing since I um, started here was to see, and I've heard them say it, that the funeral owners, the, ho the owners of the funeral homes, don't look at it as an industry. In fact, they cringe when you say industry. They look at it as a calling. And it really is that they are, they've been called to serve, not in a religious way necessarily, but called to serve those families. And that's why you see so many of the funeral homes pass down generations after generations. Like they'll say, I'm a third generation owner. 
I'm a fourth generation owner because it truly is a calling and often their kids then also see that calling as they grow up. And in fact, they'll even say that um, their kids weren't interested and then came back years later and want to do it. Oh, wow. Yeah. My grandfather was a female daughter. Really? I did not go into the family business. I played golf in college, and so it's one of those sports where you get to know the opponents that you're playing with. And one of the matches we had was against guys from Lebanon Valley College, which had a top mortuary school, and they could not believe these guys wanted to murder me <sighs> because I chose not to go into the family He's like, are you kidding? Your grandfather has a beautiful... Like, this is what we all dream about. And I was like, it just wasn't my, my, my thing. But I, but I could see... my No, my grandfather was really dedicated to his work. I mean, he really was... It was a calling. I think you need to have the calling because it's a tough business. It's a, it's a difficult business. Do you, do you find yourself, I mean, with what you're doing, do you think about death and what that means? Is that, is that more in, your, in the forefront now than it, it was before? You know, I, 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 I think so. Um, when I first started... I did worry, oh my gosh, am I going to obsess about death now? Is that all I'm going to think about? But at the end of the day, I also found after the initial kind of shock of the first things that I read and, you know, some things like that, that I said, oh my gosh, I never pictured I'd be looking at a piece of paper reading about this. Um, but I also quickly realized that my role as CEO is to help the trade association be successful, hence help the owners be successful. So it's really not looking at it so much as it's funeral directors or funeral homes. Of course, I know that, but it's like from a business standpoint, how can I help from a business standpoint? And that's what I do every day. And that's why they hired me. They could have put somebody in from the funeral industry, but they were looking for someone that can bring those other skills and tie it all together to help. Well, you certainly... It's, inter it's interesting that you asked that, though, Donna, because I think one of the things that we're... I mean, we're in a culture that hides death. Oh, I mean, you, yeah. no one talks about it. No one... <laughs> you know, it, it's just so... Whereas in certain cultures, like... I spent some time doing relief work in Haiti. And death is all around you, and you just can't hide it. I mean, it's just... It, it, it just changes the culture. But we... So you've spent a lot of time around people that they're one of the few people that are exposed to death regularly and it's not hidden. And, 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 and so that's it's I mean, that's a remarkable kind of context because most Americans don't have your experience. No, no it, it, it our members have been on the front line during all this covid, too. I mean, they're you don't hear about you don't think of them, but they are the ones that have been out there working 24 hours a day and often, you know, especially in some of the um, cities that have had it really tough, um, no days off, uh, making less money, believe it or not, through all this. You know, isn't that funny? Because that's something we never talk about. We talk about the people on the front line mm -hmm. saving lives, mm -hmm. but we're not, and, and we hear these, mm -hmm. the numbers of people who have died. We never talk about who's burying them. Yeah. Yeah. Who's handling them when, when they don't know if, you know, if they have COVID or not. And, you know, that they're hoping that they're not going to catch COVID and take it home to their kids. And yeah, so it's been, it's been really hard on the industry, which is again, you know, as I look at what me and my team, I've got a great team here, you know, how can we help 
both mentally our members and you know help help their businesses as they've gone through this challenging time and and wendy and you're doing all of this with social distancing you know work from home virtual my goodness this is this this must have been one heck of a year for you you know i think i think that we've all found it's amazing what you can do virtually it is really amazing. I mean, when I interviewed for the job here, you know, last year, it was all done virtually. And um, it, it is amazing. I think we've all learned that um, you don't have to be in an office to get something done. You don't have to be next to the other person working on a project to get something done. And I do think that's some of the good thing that we can take away from COVID is that we've found some better ways to, I mean, we don't always want to be this way, obviously, but there are tools that we can hold on to and use. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of an earlier bit of conversation we were having and I had asked you about what was your, what is it, like your biggest failure? When you look at your career, <laughs> what did you learn from? Like, what did you rise like a phoenix from? Uh, and your your answer was was fascinating. Yes. So I want you to yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. When I was at the Roller Skating Association, what um, I wanted to get a national partnership, and I wanted a partnership, um, just something really cool. And I had read some small thing about a movie coming out about roller skating, and so I reached out, and I think it was gosh Fox Searchlight. It was you know one of those studios that was doing the movie Roll Bounce. And after some communication, they agreed, let's do a promotion with you. And so I was so excited because this was a big win for me. Hey, we're gonna be partners with a Hollywood movie. And so we worked on these kids that were gonna go out to this promotion for all of the thousand um, skating centers. And I was very careful, each piece that was going out to the kit, they would mail to me, I would look at it, I would approve. Um, there wasn't video back then, so it was all, you know, mail. And the last piece was the CD. And they had sent me the list saying, it's going to be 10 out of these 20 songs. Well, that Friday, she called me up and she said, look, if we mail you the CD, it's going to hold the kids up. They're not going to get in, out in time for the launch of the movie. Can you just approve the CD? And we'll pop it in over the weekend and the kids go out. And I said, you know what? Okay, because I've seen the list. Because you, you heard the 20 yeah. songs. Great you songs. Knew what was, yeah, the yeah. songs that later are in the movie. I had heard, I mean, I knew all the songs. They were from the 70s. And um, so the kids went out, and I come into work that Monday, Tuesday, and I'm excited because my big promotion is going to be out there, and I am going to be a superstar for this promotion. Well, by Wednesday, my phone starts ringing, and it, they, it is our members and they are upset. The CD that was in the kit was not songs from movies. It was new songs. A lot of songs that had a lot of cursing, a lot of cuss words. And, you know, so they're upset because they're saying, why would you do a promotion? Because, you know, their customers are primarily kids, you know. Yeah. And I even had one that put the song on and didn't listen to it. You know, they had their person just play it. Um, so, you know, when I started realizing how many calls, I was mortified, first of all. Second of all, I was like, 
I mean, I just, you know, you want to turn, have somebody else take them, you know, who else can deal with this? But I also realized I'm the marketing director. It's my job. And so I kind of like buckled up and I started talking to the members and I, and I, and I'll tell you what I learned there. And then I coincidentally, a week later, I happened to be doing sort of a traveling show where we were meeting with members. So then I got to get them in person too, doing the same thing. But what I found is by listening to them and then I explained what happened, I apologized, I owned it. I said, this was my fault. I should have not let that last thing slip through. By the, by the end of every single call, and when I was in person, every single meeting, I think I had made better relationships with those members than I had before. Yeah. Uh, they appreciated that I owned it. I think it had been very different if I tried to have an excuse, if I tried to say, oh, because of this, or, or if I just had somebody else, my boss, talk to them. And I walked out of that, that whole situation realizing that, you know what, you can make a bad situation good. And, yeah. and, I, and I really felt like I had built relationships through that problem. Because so nobody does that right in public life. <laughs> or, or, or if somebody does it, it seems like it's forced. It's the last move. Totally. Right? Or, or if you just say, hey, you know, I screwed up. It was my fault. Uh, I was wrong. Yeah. And I'm sorry. Yeah. And, and, and I should have known better. And I'm, I'm, this won't happen again. I, I really, I mean, the power, I think the power of confession. Mm-hmm. Because it's vulnerable. And everybody has screwed up, right? Everybody has made mistakes. Everybody has been in a spot where their back is against the wall. So I'm sure that as when you were vulnerable, it called out some grace from other people because it's like, Oh my gosh, I've screwed up. I've done things like this. Whereas if you're evasive and you, and you do kind of the blame game, it's just going to infuriate people. But there's a chance that, that, that actual owning up to things will, will, will bring in real human understanding and some grace. I think absolutely. I mean, one, people just want to be heard. Like, give them the chance to be heard. And then I agree with you, um, being authentic. I mean, that's it. Being authentic with them, it goes a long way. And I was. I mean, I was, you know, maybe I was dumb enough to not try to, like, be slick, you know? And I think it it, it paid off. Now, here's my question. Did you watch the Grammys over the weekend? I didn't. Oh, okay. Well... (laughs) I have a friend that danced in the Grammys, and I didn't watch it. I'm a terrible friend. I'm a terrible friend. I was going to say, the songs that are out nowadays, they probably would make. <laughs> There's no skate. There's no skating There's to no these things. Sorry. That's not going to happen. Like, the it's whole Grammy happen. thing, like, mute it because oh, the wow. rings wouldn't play it. That's <laughs> tough. Things have changed a lot in 10 years, 20 years. Well, when was the last time you dreamed big Wendy, do you have any big dreams ahead of you or what's your next big dream? Well, gosh, I mean, I'm, I'm still, I'm still a long ways away from retirement, but I will say that my husband and I have started dreaming about, you know, what, what can we do when we retire and how, you know, we want to be healthy. We want to, we want to be able to do a lot. And, and I'm so grateful because my husband is also a dreamer and also, you know, works really hard. And I think that we both look at our careers and say, gosh, thankfully, because we 
dreamt big and, and were willing to take a chance and, and not be afraid to try things, we've moved our careers along far enough that I think when we do retire, we'll be able to have a decent life, which is great. And that's what you want to like. It's important to have a great life while you're living, but also set yourself up so that when you do retire, um, that you can really enjoy it. And, and continue. I mean, I think looking at your, your career, you've always, you've always strived to help people. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that's not anything that's ever going to, I don't think you're ever going to stop helping. No, absolutely. If, and when, I mean, whenever the time comes that I retire, I, you know, I could see myself volunteering quite a bit. You know, it's, it's interesting because my jobs have always kept me so busy that in one sense, my, a lot of my volunteering has been within the work that I do. Um, so part of me does think it'll be great when I'm retired that I can give a hundred percent to some other organization that could use my help. So that's what I'd like to do. Well, you've, you've had a, you, you, you said it, it's a, a very colorful career path. <laughs> you've, you've done a lot and you've, uh, you, you've certainly made some really interesting moves and, uh, you know, thank you so much for well, joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Wendy, this was a real pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Dream Big with Big Dreamers. If you like the show, please do us a favor. Go into iTunes and write a review and give us a rating or share it with a friend via social media or email if you think they'd benefit from these conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Until then, keep dreaming big.